Glory to Jesus Christ, Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their history, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is the story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by the iconography of Father Thomas J. Loya. Father Loya's iconography for your prayer and home devotion may be obtained by going to MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com That's MorningstarBooksAndGifts.com Then click on the Art and Decorative link and click on Icons in the drop-down box or call 630-629-1720 Morningstar Books and Gifts 28 West St. Charles Street, Lombard, Illinois Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. And in my diocese, or as we call them in the Eastern Church, our eparchy, the eparchy of Parma, which is centered in the Cleveland, Ohio area, Bishop John Kudrick, our bishop, has launched our own eparchal initiative on marriage. This is in concert with the initiative of the United States Catholic bishops. And with that in mind, I've been presenting here a kind of a mini-series of marriage in the Byzantine Church. We're walking through the wedding ceremonies, as it were, because we're using that as a framework, a kind of a reservoir to reach and dip into that helps to present for us through this framework, through the ceremony, the theology of marriage, the spirituality of marriage, especially from the Eastern Christian perspective. You see, in the Eastern Church, particularly, the liturgy the prayer of the church basically holds for us the entire treasure chest, as it were, all the riches of our theology. In other words, what we pray is what we believe. How we worship holds for us all of the theology, the doctrine, the dogma, the spirituality of our church. And so when we go deep into the ceremony, whether it's a wedding ceremony, a ceremony of baptism, you know, the liturgy, the sacraments, and we sort of unpack them, we kind of penetrate deeply into them, we are able to get a good glimpse into the heart, the soul of the Eastern lung of the church, the Eastern theology and spirituality. We were talking before about the prayers of the church in terms of the ritual of marriage in the Byzantine church, and the prayers are very beautiful, encompassing, as always, in the Eastern church. And they mention certain Old Testament figures, such as Joseph and Asenath, Ephraim and Manasseh, Zachary and Elizabeth, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Rachel. And these are mentioned for a number of reasons in the prayers of the ritual for marriage in the Byzantine church. First of all, they bring us back way to the beginning, the Old Testament, to show how long, since time immemorial, marriage is an honorable state. As Jesus said one time, he referred back to the beginning. And he said that in the beginning, man and woman were created you know, for each other to become one flesh. So marriage is something that is primordial, something that is of the created order, a way that we involve and engage ourselves in the very life of the Trinity and how God loves. It is through marriage that we're able to love as God loves. And so we go reach deep into the Old Testament, to the earliest figures of marriage, and all these people were people who were righteous. Some of them 
were people who, by, in a sense, an act of God and inter- miraculous intervention, were able to bear children at a ripe old age, like Abraham and Sarah. And so it shows God's intervention, God's sort of favor in these marriage situations. So it shows marriage to be a very honorable state from time immemorial. And these people are examples for us, examples of their righteousness as righteous people. They had a very righteous and holy and happy marriage. They had children. And sometimes, again, these things happen by miraculous intercession by God himself. And so we refer to these Old Testament figures in the wedding ceremony of the Byzantine church. And these are sort of ensconced in the beautiful, lengthy, encompassing prayers of the priest as he stands there before the bride and groom in the wedding ceremony. Now, as I mentioned earlier also, the Byzantine emphasis on things probably could be best described with the word participation in, sort of an entering into. This is one of the reasons why the Byzantine wedding ceremony begins with the priest leading the couple, man and woman, the husband and wife-to-be, together with the wedding party into the church. This is the idea that the church is receiving this couple's relationship. In the West, they emphasize the covenant between the two. We have that element as well. But in the East, the emphasis is more on the couple's relationship now being brought into a new reality, the life of the church and into the life of the Holy Trinity. And so the priest symbolizes that. The priest makes present then the church and also God, the Holy Trinity. And so the priest leads the couple together into the church. Now, prior to the wedding ceremony, we also have a betrothal ceremony. And this betrothal ceremony actually has also an ancient origin to it. In fact, in the book called Inexhaustible Delights, which is put out by the God With Us publications, it's a book about the holy mysteries or the sacraments of the Eastern churches. And in the section on marriage, it says this, The contemporary Byzantine blessing of marriage consists of three parts, the betrothal, the crowning, and the eighth-day removal of crowns. The betrothal, at which the rings are exchanged, represents the original civil ceremony. When all marriages became the business of the church, this rite was added. In some churches, it is performed today when the engagement takes place. Even when joined to the crowning in one service, Byzantine liturgical texts still indicate that the betrothal is to be performed in the narthex, reminiscent of its civil origins. See, what happened was there was a time when all marriages became the responsibility of the church. In other words, everyone was married in the church who was going to be married in the Eastern cultures. So what happened was the church had to come up with a way to unite these people in marriage when sometimes these people were not believers or it was a mixed marriage. How do you do this? So the church couldn't use the Eucharist per se, to unite this couple in marriage, which ultimately they were united in the Eucharist. And the Byzantine church had to come up with other ways. And one of those ways was this betrothal service. It was what we also call the exchange of rings, the blessing of rings. The emphasis very much is on the promise to one another, how each one is given to the other. And the priest blesses these rings, puts it on the couple, and that, in a sense, kind of seals their relationship. So the betrothal, what we might call today is the engagement, is actually very serious business in the Byzantine church. And it was the way that the church came up with to accommodate these weddings of people who were not part of the church, but yet the church still had the responsibility for all marriages. But today, the betrothal service brought a certain weight, a certain substance and importance to the time of courtship, which we know today as the engagement. So the Petrolo service really was a rather binding service. In fact, there is an exchange of rings and a blessing by the priest. That's a very, very binding in the Eastern Church. When you exchange a ring and it's blessed by the priest, we have something that's very, very substantial there. And I think this is very relevant and helpful for our world today 
Because there's a whole lot of questions about issues such as dating and courtship, that time leading up to marriage. And perhaps this substantial betrothal ceremony, all that it means today and its implications for us today, might be helpful in finding our way through this whole question of what really is dating? Many families had even raised the question, and rightly so, should we date? Should their children date, as it were? Or should they just have a period of what we call courtship? Now, courtship is a little bit closer this definition to this betrothal idea. What it means basically is a young man and a young woman did not go off together in an exclusive relationship that we know today as quote-unquote dating. What happened was the young lady would stay at home. She would live at home until the time that she was to become married. And then she was introduced to a man and a man to her. And there was some obviously some interest there, but it was with the idea that, okay, this is the person that you're going to get to know and you're going to marry. There wasn't that sense of, well, I'm going to shop around and try this person for a while and become very intimate with them right away, and then we break up, and then we go on to somebody else, and we get very intimate right away. No, there was almost sort of mock marriage, as it were. Dating has become almost like a mock marriage, and much to our detriment, obviously, in our culture. And so a lot of people are taking a second look at this whole idea of dating, what that really is, and we're trying to find our way. In other words, how does a young man and woman come to know each other? When should they come to know each other? When should they really associate with each other in a somewhat exclusive way? Shouldn't it only be when it seems like there's a great possibility of marriage? I have a friend of mine who, who has a number of lovely daughters, and he does not allow the daughters to quote-unquote date. He will, however, allow a man to frequent and visit his daughter if this man is, number one, capable of marriage, in other words, that he's financially and psychologically and spiritually stable enough. Secondly, he intends to marry at some point in his life. He's looking to be married. And thirdly, he sees his daughter as a potential candidate for that. Then the father says, yes, you may see my daughter. But if you're just coming to quote-unquote date, he says, what's the point of that? No, you can't. And that might sound strange to some of us today, but actually, if we, again, we look into this ceremony of the Byzantine church and this ancient practice of betrothal, it suddenly maybe becomes very relevant to us in finding our way through this whole world of man-woman relationships, especially when it comes to our teenagers. What really is dating? Should we date? Is it necessary? Should it be redefined? What is courtship? What is engagement? What actually is marriage? The prayer of the church can guide us into the answers to these questions. So we want you to stay with us here on Light of the East. And if you're interested more in the marriage initiative of my eparchy, the eparchy of Parma, you can simply visit the website of our eparchy. It's parma.org. That's parma.org. Please stay with us. I'm Father Thomas Loyal on Light of the East. Light of the East's mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Would you like to hear this Light of the East program again? Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Or hear Father Loya's companion program, A Body of Truth. Just visit the radio page at byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Or hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. For the first time.
Welcome back to Light of the East, where we're walking through the ritual of marriage in the Byzantine Church in light of the bishop's initiative, the bishops of the United States, and also of my own bishop, Bishop John Kudrick, in the Eparchy of Parma. And let's get back also to some of the prayers of the ritual of marriage in the Byzantine Church. One of the beautiful prayers the priest says is this, Holy God, you form man out of the dust of the earth. You fashioned a woman from his rib and joined her to him as a helpmate. For it pleased your great generosity that man should not be alone upon earth. Now, O Master, stretch forth your hand from your holy dwelling place and join these your servants, John and Mary. For you alone join the wife to her husband. Unite them in one mind and flesh, granting them fruitfulness and rewarding them with good children. For yours is the might, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and ever and forever. Amen. Again, the prayers unlock for us the deep and profound theology, in, especially in the ritual of the Byzantine church. And in this prayer, the priest, as you heard, mentions this. He says that you fashion a woman from his rib and join her to him as a helpmate, for it pleased your great generosity that man should not be alone upon earth. Now, there's something really profound in this. This starts to point us then to the whole deep meaning of what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman. We define ourselves in terms of complementarity. A man comes to know who he truly is only in relation to womanhood and vice versa. And it was so from the beginning. Think about Adam. Adam was alone at first on this earth as as a human being. He was there, of course, with the plants, the animals, and so on. But he was alone. He had what is often called a original sort of innocence or original solitude. But he did not fully understand himself. So God puts him into a trance-like state. And the original word is ecstasy, or sometimes we say sleep. And from that, as the prayer says, he took a rib and created woman. So Adam wakes up, and his first words are, at the sight of this woman, this one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one is called woman. In other words, Adam comes to realize who he truly is now as a man, only in relation to womanhood. He sees that he is designed to enter into a union of persons with this woman. He sees he is able to love as God loves, to do what God did. Because as the prayer says, unite them in one mind and flesh. In other words, like the Trinity, the relationship of man to woman in marriage is a participation in the Trinity. That's right. Adam and Eve, or a man and a woman, a bride and a groom, remain distinctly who they are, always. Always have their individuality. But at the same time, in some great mystery, they become one. Now, where do we see this? We see this in God himself, in the God that we believe in, who is three distinct persons. They never become confused. They always remain distinct, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and yet they become one God. This is an incredible, incomprehensible mystery, but it is the nature of God. And God, because he loved us, wanted us to partake of his very nature, to actually participate in his life of love. And so he created us male and female so that we too could enter into this union and communion of persons where individuals could remain who they are and yet become one all at the same time, just like the Trinity. Also, the prayer then mentions fruitfulness. Now, this is another profound phrase in this prayer points to another profound reality about our humanness and the purpose of our humanness. We teach in the church that marriage is about union and procreation. In other words, there's a unitive and procreative factor of marriage, especially of human sexuality, of marital relations. It's something that unites the two and also is ordered to or open to fruitfulness, to new life. 
In other words, life and love always go together. I call them the L words. Life and love always go together. And in the prayers of the Byzantine church, in the Byzantine wedding ceremony, this fruitfulness is constantly referred to because it is part and parcel of marriage. In other words, it is in a sense a natural outcome of love. Where there is love that comes together, there is naturally life. There is something that comes from that by nature. And once again, in this regard, we are imaging God, we're imaging the love of God that it was also creative. It also moved out from itself and created and brought forth life. And then he infused himself into that life that he brought forth. It's the same thing with a mother and a father, a parent, Adam and Eve, husband and wife. Fruitfulness or the openness to that, the potential for that is inseparable from the union of the two. And this points to the very deep meaning of the one flesh union between husband and wife. So fruitfulness is of God. Fruitfulness is a natural outgrowth of love. And there it is in the very prayers of the church. Well, next we have, if it didn't happen already in the betrothal ceremony, we have what's called the bestowal of rings. Again, the rings are blessed at this point. And the priest says, the servant of God, John, is a spouse, the servant of God, Mary, in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Then he blesses the groom with it by blessing him over the head with the ring and then places it on his finger. Then he turns to the bride, takes the ring, blesses her head with it by saying the servant of God, Mary, is a spouse of the servant of God, John, in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Then he places the ring on the bride's finger. Now, the ring is a very powerful symbol. A ring had to do with a number of things, one of which was a kind of a, in a sense, an ownership, but in a good way. In other words, a sense of commitment. And because the ring was made of precious metal like gold, it dignifies that particular relationship of belonging to one another. In other words, like uh, making a gift of self, a sort of a gift of gold to one another. And also because the ring is round, circular that is, it's symbolic of an eternal commitment. You know, the circle has no beginning or no end. And so the ring has a number of images to it, and it was a very significant symbol in the time of the scripture and also in the ancient times. So whenever you brought rings out and blessed them and put them on something, it was like a seal, almost like stamping something with a seal. It was very binding and very significant. So again, the rings are blessed and bestowed upon the bride and the groom. Oftentimes in the Byzantine wedding ceremony, you will see the exchange of vows. Now, this was actually a later addition into the Byzantine ceremony. The vows, in a sense, are really not necessary. One of the reasons is because these vows are done at the beginning of the ceremony, in a sense, and the betrothal ceremony, where the priest will ask the couple before the ceremony actually starts, have you come here, John, freely to take Mary here to be your wife according to the mind of the church? And he, of course, responds, I have. And then the priest asks the bride, have you come here freely, Mary, to take John here present to be your husband according to the mind of the church? And of course, hopefully, presumably, she answers, I have. Now, this, in a sense, is the exchange of consent, and it happens at the very beginning, before the ceremony actually really unfolds, so that we make sure that they have come here freely even before the wedding ceremony actually unfolds. You want to make sure that's right up front at the beginning. In other churches, such as in Latin Rite, the vows occur later on in the ceremony, and as I mentioned, they were a later addition into the Byzantine ceremony and are done kind of partway through it. And the vows say this, I, John, take you, Mary, to be my wife, and I promise to love you, to respect you, to always be faithful to, never to forsake you, to death do us part. 
So help me God, one in the Holy Trinity, and all the saints. Once again, there's the invocation of the Trinity. As I mentioned, these vows came in later, so they, in a sense, are optional, because they already done, in a matter of speaking, early on. Sometimes the priests do it, sometimes not. They are not essential, per se, not in the Byzantine ceremony, because what happens with the consent is covered in other areas. What does become more important, though, in the Byzantine ceremony is what is known as the crowning. The crowning is one of the quintessential moments in the Byzantine ritual for marriage. The priest actually uses crowns. Now, these can be of different styles. Some are something like a wreath, something like a tiara, or full-fledged crowns. You know, very magnificent crowns, a kind of a more of a Russian-style crown, a very royal, kingly, queenly kind of shape of a crown. And what happens is, the priest takes the crown and he says this, The servant of God, John, is crowned with for marriage for the servant of God, Mary, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And he places the crown on the head of the groom. Then he goes to the bride. The servant of God, Mary, is crowned in marriage for the servant of God, John, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Then he blesses them both by saying, O Lord, our God, crown them with glory and honor. Now, we're going to talk about the meaning of these crowns next time because they're really rich with meaning, and they are that one of the quintessential moments in the Byzantine marriage ritual. In fact, in the Byzantine marriage ritual, as we mentioned before, we can't emphasize this enough, it's not so much the promise the couple makes between each other that actually marries them, as it were. Rather, it is the crowning with the blessing of the priest. This is how it is in the Eastern Church because, as we said before, marriage in the Eastern Church is an entrance into something. So the priest is receiving this couple's relationship and elevating it into the life of the church and into the Holy Trinity. We're going to talk more about the crowning ceremony and the entire ceremony, the ritual of marriage in the Byzantine church next time. So I do thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East's mission is Christianity's reunion and to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic church. We need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. Click on the radio button and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. Would you like to hear this Light of the East program again? Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya. Or hear Father Loya's companion program, A Body of Truth. Just visit the radio page at byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. Or hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. Hear it again. For the first time. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To find out more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue this program with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount would be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road. Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610, Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K, Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God bless you and grant you many happy years. <laughs>